Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The following program contains language and themes which may not be suitable for everybody. Good evening. Now that most of the major witnesses in the Watergate phase of the Senate Committee hearings on campaign practices have been heard, the time has come for me to speak out about the charges made and to provide a perspective on the issue for the American people. For over four months, Watergate has dominated the news media. During the past three months, the three major networks have devoted an average of over 22 hours of television time each week to this subject. The Senate committee has heard over two million words of testimony. This investigation began as an effort to discover the facts about the break-in and bugging of the Democratic National Headquarters and other campaign abuses. But as the weeks have gone by, it has become clear that both the hearings themselves and some of the commentaries on them have become increasingly absorbed in an effort to implicate the president personally in the illegal activities that took place. Because the abuses occurred during my administration and in the campaign for my reelection, I accept full responsibility for them. I regret that these events took place. And I do not question the right of a Senate committee to investigate charges made against the president to the extent that this is relevant to legislative duties. However, it is my constitutional responsibility to defend the integrity of this great office against false charges. I also believe that it is important to address the overriding question of what we as a nation can learn from this experience and what we should now do. I do want to emphasize that the giving of instructions in this very important respect uh, isn't important because it interferes with Archie Cox. It's sort of embarrassing to be put in a position to say, well, uh, I don't want the President of the United States to tell me what to do. I was brought up uh, with the greatest uh, respect for every president of the United States. Uh, but that isn't what's involved. Uh, it's that there's a basic change in the institutional arrangement that was established. Uh, there was a widespread feeling that there was need for an investigation conducted by someone wholly outside the administration who believed in the normal processes of the grand jury and the courts, who would follow them and adhere to them, and who wouldn't be subject to instructions that might call him off or impede his work. And the purpose of this was to make it plain that the country would get such an investigation. It happened to be me. It may have been a good choice or a bad choice. The way to handle this now is for us to have Walters call back right 
President Nixon. We have a cancer within the close to the presidency that's growing. It's growing daily. The Democratic National Committee is located in the Watergate office building. The burglars forced a stairwell door, then taped its latch open. What really hurts in matters of this sort is not the fact that they occur, because overzealous people in campaigns do things that are wrong. What really hurts is if you try to cover it up. Because only if you've been in the deepest valley can you ever know how magnificent it is to be on the highest mountain. Alright, welcome back to episode five of the Crow Pod Heart and Hand special series we've been working on here, Watergate 50. And boy, oh boy, do we got a doozy for you today. Good good Lord, David. We've got, we've got a lot to, to climb through to, to get these people. We, we've got a bunch of tapes. We've got a patrician bow-tied man from Harvard <laughs> Law School. We've got a, a, a vice president suddenly resigning for something that had, well, again, absolutely nothing to do with Watergate whatsoever. And then we've got a brutal massacre coming on a, on a mm. Saturday night uh, as people are just getting done watching college football. Uh, yes, welcome everyone to the the sleeper hit of the summer. So thank you for that. Um, yeah. The show's proven very popular indeed, and we're very grateful for that. But uh, welcome to, my goodness, uh, when things start to tumble down a hill, Shane, they pick up momentum and they pick yeah. up speed. And the speed now with which events, huge events, are occurring. Uh, we talk about a modern news cycle and it can sometimes feel more frantic because they are looking for stuff to fill rolling news coverage. And we, as we know in the modern media, things get blown up. Everything we're just about to talk about is enormous. Like epoch, <laughs> you know, defining era-defining moments, yet they're all happening at the same time. And that's one of the things about Watergate, that the relentless nature. This is an era before 24-7 news coverage. This is an era where you watch the news at night and you read your paper in the morning and that was where you got your news. And yet these huge, earth-shattering, earth-changing, history-changing moments are following one after the other. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you were here last week, and then most of you were, I mean, all this really just explodes on July 16th when Alexander Butterfield sits there in front of the, the committee and says, yeah, no, he's he's got tapes of all this shit, and everyone's <laughs> jaws just hits the floor and goes, holy fuck. But there, there, there were there were two things, I think, that, that were important that came out of that. One, everybody who went, well, shit, that, now we've got a way to find uh, – you know, the, the, the proof of these crimes and everything that's been going on in the White House for the past couple of years. But it also gave supporters of Nixon, I, I, they almost felt calm at first because, of course, if, if you didn't believe John Dean, uh, who, who, you know, was really the only witness to sit up there and directly implicate the president in, in well, crime, right? Lots and lots of crimes mm -hmm. and his direct influence on the cover up and 
how the money was supposed to move about and everything else. If you didn't believe John Dean, as a lot of people still didn't, this this kind of gave you a sense of calm because you you went, well, you know what? Nixon's just going to be able to release these tapes or, or you know, let, let us let us see what's going on. And that we'll know John Dean's a fucking liar, just just like, you know, we all think he is. And we can just move on past this. And that that kind of mindset, I think, implicated or, or, or uh, I don't, just just gave cover to a lot of these Republicans who are still holding on to hope that Nixon would walk from this. Well, I think it's 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 not an unfair perception to have at this point because I'm a great believer in are all these people lying? And normally, <laughs> no, they're not. Normally, if it's one person's word versus 25 other people, which yep. it was at this point, as you mentioned, then I don't think it is unfair to say, well, on the balance of probability, it's how we do court cases, isn't it? We bring in yeah. witnesses, and if enough witnesses corroborate a story uh, and one person denies it, they're, they're generally found guilty. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it did seem an incredibly straightforward way just to deal with this issue. That yeah. Right, okay, great. Um, there's a tape of this so-called conversation. Just release it, and that'll be the end of the matter. Now, Nixon doesn't want to because, obviously... <laughs> um, he will be, you know, he is guilty, and he will be found guilty should that these tapes be released, and that that immediately sparks a debate. Uh, he actually is taken to Basida Naval Hospital uh, because he has pneumonia, and it was quite serious, uh, yeah. incidentally. So a lot of these conversations I'm about to describe did take place from his hospital bed, and he got mixed messages from his lawyer. Um, uh, uh, Fred Bazart told him. Look, if you destroy the tapes, they haven't been subpoenaed yet. They are your tapes, so yeah. they're your property, and you can you can destroy them if you want to. But Leonard Garment, uh, who was I think a bit more dispassionate about it, he'd worked with with Nixon before he knew who Nixon was. Basically, um, he said, um, "I know they haven't been subpoenaed yet, but they're going to. It could be seen." as destruction of evidence and therefore even if they can't bring a court case against you for it they certainly could use it as an article of impeachment in yeah. in the house to get ready as a president nixon kind of hums and haws but he decides against it for two reasons uh well three reasons really one he is guilty and that's probably the underlying and and uh, the main one but yeah but he doesn't to, say that he doesn't say that no he doesn't he doesn't say that but he so that i mean that is the reason but the the two yeah. reasons that he gives is one and he's correct on this doesn't matter if it's illegal or not the public if he destroys the tapes he can't survive it politically because right. they will all think understandably why did you destroy them um, and three, he genuinely believes they have no right to them, that they are his property, and there is a doctrine of executive privilege. Now, this goes back all the way to George Washington, folks, yeah. when Congress wanted to look at uh, some notes of his uh, or some inner workings to do with the Jay Treaty, which is a very famous early treaty that the Chief Justice John Jay signed with Britain, actually. And there was some revolt about it in the country people thought it was too soft on the british and they wanted to see what instructions jay had been given and washington just refused he said nope um i'm claiming this thing called executive privilege uh that i 
have invented because he was the first to invented bright watch everything um but he said no look i need to be able to do my job and that means i need to be able to talk to my representatives without knowing that every single thing is going to be second guessed and that held for a long long time uh and nixon had seen eisenhower use it during the mccarthy hearings he'd seen truman use it where they just said nope what goes on basically what goes on in the oval office stays in the oval office and he argues publicly I cannot do this because I can't have people coming into my office and not feeling they can give me the their honest advice and giving me advice and giving me any credit. And, and always with Nixon, there's this mix of, I'm not doing it for me, you know, the high-handed thing. Yeah. I'm doing this for posterity because future presidents, <laughs> I care so much about the presidency and I need to protect my underlings. Well, you could try by not recording them without letting them know, Dick. <laughs> I think. Yeah, yeah, that's you know good for or or you know your wife, your daughter, or just anyone your that wife happens and in daughter, your office I mean, or calls oh my you or God. Yeah, yeah. It, well, and you know, I mean, immediately, of course, this descends into a court battle. I mean, we kind of touched on this last week, but not not only with the the Senate uh, Watergate committee itself, but of course the man. The special prosecutor uh, appointed, but at the behest of Elliot Richardson, back back before even the uh, the, the, the committees got going there, um, uh, Archibald Cox. And he wasn't happy about the committee, Cox. Um, no, he felt, no, he felt that it would hinder their investigation. That things that they should be investigating quietly and privately were now being displayed on the TV. So he tried to get it cancelled, actually, and Senator Sam. Uh, Within two short words, told him to go forth and multiply. <laughs> yeah, well, and I think, you know, Irvin kind of made this point clear by starting the committee hearings on May 17th, uh, two days before Richardson would appoint Cox. Like, it was mm. just, yeah, you, you can go ahead and bitch and moan about it. You know, and at, the, at this point, Cox, I mean, this kind of noteworthy. R- Richardson allegedly had a list of like 100 men that he wanted to, uh, you know, try in this role. And he, he said after the fact, he doesn't know how many people he called, you know, be, before Cox finally said yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, so Irvin does this. And so knowing that uh, he's not going to be able to, to touch Sam uh, because, yeah, I mean, come on, you're talking about goddamn Sam Irvin. I mean, mm-hmm. so you were here last week. This, this is not a man that's going to listen to you. <laughs> you know? uh, but, but, but Cox is – is appointed here on on the nineteenth, and well, we'll we'll give you a minute of uh, of him talking here on the days he's uh, introduced to the public as the Watergate special prosecutor. You already know that Secretary Richardson has asked me to accept the post of special prosecutor uh, to prosecute the offenses growing out of the breaking into the Watergate and other related uh, allegations involving either the presidential campaign uh, or at a presidential appointee. I've accepted the post if the, if the Senate approves, uh, not without an odd sense of responsibility. Uh, the tasks are of enormous importance uh, and enormous difficulty, uh, enormous magnitude. Was there, in a sense, greater freedom given to you, do you think? Of course, I have no way of knowing. I haven't talked to the others. Yes. All I can 
say is what I said before, that I am satisfied on the basis of uh, my conversations with Secretary Richardson and this draft uh, that it gives me every opportunity to be independent, and I intend to exercise it. So Cox here, again, he's not going to be able to do anything about Irvin, but one thing he does do when he starts to put together his team is start stripping people off of the U.S. attorney investigation that's already ongoing and to, well, not only Watergate, but the illegal campaign finance schemes and just, I mean, all, all the other really illegal shit that's, that's going on here. And again, th- this is before the revelation of the tapes. This is two months before that. And he's already trying to steer uh, everything through his office and, and successfully does so much to the chagrin of the, the U.S. attorney team that, that had been working on this. I think, I mean, it was, it was by the time even Dean had testified, uh, he'd effectively cut out the entire U.S. attorney office uh, as far as uh, their, their, their involvement mm-hmm. in any of the, the uh, continuing ongoing looks into prosecution or grand jury indictments or anything like that. And, uh, you know, it, it was just like in Nixon's belief that executive privilege overwhelms any compelling court or uh, Senate committee uh, need to, to listen to his tapes, Cox felt that the, you know, the, the importance of a special independent prosecutor overwhelmed the need for anyone operating within the Department of Justice of the Nixon White House to continue investigating. Yes, and uh, you're absolutely right that basically what happens is Cox comes in and within a matter of weeks, he, he shuts down Errol Silbert's prosecuto- yep. uh, prosecutorial team and said, we're taking this over, much as you say to their chagrin. Neil Kinnock said a a thing about Margaret Thatcher once where he said uh, ah, she had she had enemies that, oh, I wish they had been my enemies. She had good enemies. They, she had Argentina and she had Arthur Scargill that were so, you know, in the wrong and unsympathetic that they were having sent. Reagan was similar. Reagan had good enemies. Oh, my goodness. Nixon, he did not get lucky in that draw. He gets Archibald <laughs> Cox, who looks like... He's he's up for a casting role for Gregory Peck's role in To Kill a Mockingbird. He looks every inch the grandfatherly, knowledgeable, well-spoken, calm, dignified, folksy, intellectual, right? Um, he has Elliot Richardson, who looks like Clark Sodding Kent, who yeah. has an impeccable political record, who was a war hero, right? He the, has the, jo- important, the Secretary of Defense, who again, the way Richardson gets into the 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 uh, Attorney General position is by promising the Senate, "I'm going to let this guy do whatever the fuck he needs to do." And he That's, didn't even want the job. That was the thing. He didn't no. want to be the Attorney General, but um, they moved him, and, and Nixon basically says to him, "Look, there's nobody else I can get in." So because it needs, as Shane says, it needs to be approved by the Senate. Um, they'll approve you. They won't approve anybody else. You're going. Um, he felt. I think, not unfairly, it was a bit of a demotion and he was enjoying his role as Secretary yeah. of Defence. But he goes in um, and he, he gets a tough time at his Senate confirmation and he's sort of like, I don't even want that shot. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, okay. And they say, look, Watergate, will you uh, appoint a special prosecutor? He says, yes. And will you give him the independence to do the job? And he says, yes, I will. Uh and unfortunately for Nixon, he actually is a man of his word. And he will, as we're going to come to, he will stick to that. But uh, yeah, I mean, Nixon, 
didn't do well on the enemy's front. He had, unfortunately, credible, believable, likable, and most importantly, truthful people <laughs> all arraigned against him here. And uh, yeah, so you know, Cox comes in, he gets his team put together very, very quickly. Um, a lot of young lawyers who are doing this case, you know, it's good for their careers, they know, but equally, there's a lot of committed people. You know, there are, there are, there are a lot of young people who really believe that he's done wrong and they're going to go out and they're going to find the truth, whatever it is, in this, uh, which is uh, another tough thing for him to overcome. Yeah. Well, and, you know, within just the short time span, he's up and running and they are already, I mean, American Airlines, I think it's the first week of July is admitting a illegal campaign contribution through Herb Kalmbach, of course, Nixon's personal lawyer. Um, they, they get what Ashland Oil and Goodyear Tire. Uh, they they are they get, of course the they get George Steinbrenner. They get George Steinbrenner the year that he's purchased the New York Yankees. Steinbrenner what was it? he? He gave out bonuses to um, <laughs> to, to, to employees of his. Uh, he owned a shipbuilding company in Cleveland, and he gave out bonuses of twenty five grand to five or six employees. I can't remember what it was. And you know, like hey as we were talking about last week, you know, here's, here's a list of all these uh, political action committees. You need to pick some and put this fucking money into it. And so, yeah, I mean, what, what was it? The, the August, I mean, cyber was going to fight this shit to the end. And, and, you know, after, after Cox is gone, as we'll get to, and honestly, after Nixon's gone, cyber finally got, ah, I'm fucked. And, you know, pleads guilty. Uh, he ends up getting suspended from MLB. Uh, and of course, Ronald Reagan, with a wonderful, wonderful, Man, well above board, never had any presidential scandals himself, of course. Uh, finally pardons him in, <laughs> in 1989 of all his crimes. But mm. uh, no, it's that. It's the ITT scandal that we discussed prior. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it, and, and this is what this is one of the things that, that starts driving Nixon crazy, because, you know, just like with the Senate committee, uh, instead of concentrating on the Watergate break in. And who, you know, who and what would that? Because that's what this committee was set up to do. Just like with Cox, he feels like that, that they're starting to expand beyond uh, what their remit was supposed to be. Now, of course, you, you would believe that mm-hmm. if, uh, you know, they were digging into stuff and finding you breaking the law all over the place. Yes. <laughs> um, but, that, but, you it, feel it, that. Yeah. I mean, well, that's, that's exactly it. He felt, look, you're you're here to do the break-in and the cover-up and nothing else. Yep. Um, Cox was like, no, um, we're actually here to look at anything that feeds into that. And as, as Shane and I have you know, discussed the last few weeks, everything did lead into it. The culture led into it. Um, we'll come to Nixon's, one of the most famous lines of Watergate, um, to do with the president's denial of his uh, criminality uh, in a memorable phrase. That's not about Watergate. That's something that gets missed, although it happens in this era. Um, This is about he had made... uh, (laughs) This is brilliant. He had got round taxes by making a gift, in inverted commas, of his vice presidential papers. Now, you know, they are quite important things. They're artifacts. They are very important. Uh, A lot of very useful information there for historians. But he had them valued at £500,000, dollars, (laughs) sorry, and thus got that off his taxes. And he ended up paying, I think, one year, it was like $239. Yeah, some. Um, I mean, yeah, he he had uh, his house at San Clemente um, bought for him basically by Baby Rebozo, but yeah. then he had it turned from being a lovely, 
you know, California mansion into a super California mansion <laughs> at the taxpayer's expense because he said, oh, no, I need it for security. Now, Archibald Cox kind of, I think, quite rightly says, I don't think landscaping all your new gardens comes under <laughs> national security. Um, so next, as Shane says, look, when a president, and it was the same with, even with Clinton, the reason they don't want people going off what they're initially in to do is they've done bad things elsewhere. That's yeah. the only reason, because if you've got nothing to hide, you're like, knock yourself out. Yeah. Well, and so, you know, as this goes on, again, the week after Butterfield testifies, Nixon is, you know, now he's starting to fight not only the Senate committee, but again, Cox, in terms of turning over all the tapes that everybody knows now exists, you know, and, 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 and we go back to our good friend, Judge John J. Sirica, who's <laughs> presiding over these cases in district court. And for, for weeks of back and forth battles, you know, tr- trying to, tr- to pry these, these tapes loose from the White House. And of course, Nixon, again, claiming executive privilege and Sirica saying now that, that that bullshit, stop that. That doesn't work. (laughs) Uh, In the middle of all this, Nixon gives a speech here on August 15th. Uh, You heard a little bit of it up there at the top, but I want to give you a little bit more because it is, there are so many Nixon speeches. You know, we go back to the one on uh, April 30th, uh, which we're going to hear some responses to from good friends of Nixon uh, on the tapes here in a little bit. Uh, But this one on on the 15th, and of course the one David just mentioned there that comes up later in the year with with the, the famous, famous line, um, none of them did a very good job of convincing the public. And you start to see the support for Nixon uh, erode rapidly. I mean, but it was part of the, the plan with Cox's uh, uh, um, team was going after these low-lying but easy-to-prove campaign finance contribution problems. And, you know, by, by I want to say it was around December or January of, you know, 73, 74, um, while... Nixon was still fuming over the fact that that Cox had spent time going after all of his big money friends. Uh, there, there was a survey done that um, it was right around 80 or 85 percent of Americans polled thought that uh, illegal corporate financing was harmful to the country. Now, you'd have a hard time getting that same kind of stuff today. But again, Nixon, th- this was what was slowly eroding the confidence of him. And, and here like I said, here's, here's part of a speech from August 15th that really just, I'd say, went over like a lead balloon, David, when you kind of kind of throw that gauntlet down there. Yeah. Nixon's problem is when he gets flustered, um, he gets angry. And yeah. he thinks he's good at controlling his anger, and he really isn't. Um, no. He's one of these people that thinks he bought his face. He has a very expressive face, and it just yeah. gives him away. And yeah, it, gonna it, hear it doesn't. Yep. So here you go. Take a listen. The record of the Senate hearings is lengthy. The facts are complicated. The evidence conflicting. It would not be right for me to try to sort out the evidence to rebut specific witnesses or to pronounce my own judgments about their credibility. That is for the committee and for the courts. I shall not attempt to deal tonight with the various charges in detail. Rather, I shall attempt to put the events in perspective from the standpoint of the presidency. On May 22nd, before the major witnesses had testified, I issued a detailed statement addressing the charges that had been made against the president. I have today issued another written statement, which addresses the charges that have been made since then as they relate to my own conduct. 
and which describes the efforts that I made to discover the facts about the matter. On May 22nd, I stated in very specific terms, and I state again to every one of you listening tonight, these facts. I had no prior knowledge of the Watergate break-in. I neither took part in nor knew about any of the subsequent cover-up activities. I neither authorized nor encouraged subordinates to engage in illegal or improper campaign tactics. That was, and that is, the simple truth. In all of the millions of words of testimony, there is not the slightest suggestion that I had any knowledge of the planning for the Watergate break-in. As for the cover-up, my statement has been challenged by only one of the 35 witnesses who appeared. A witness who offered no evidence beyond his own impressions and whose testimony has been contradicted by every other witness in a position to know the facts. I ask tonight for your understanding so that as a nation we can learn the lessons of Watergate and gain from that experience. I ask for your help in reaffirming our dedication to the principles of decency, honor, and respect for the institutions that have sustained our progress through these past two centuries. And I ask for your support in getting on once again with meeting your problems, improving your life, building your future. With your help, with God's help, we will achieve those great goals for America. So now, here we go. The, 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 because the, the tape battle is ongoing, Cox is not giving this up, the committee is not giving this up, nobody is going to give up on this thing. And it's, well, Ken, I mean, it's starting, it's starting to break. I mean, well, it's, it's, it's starting to wear Nixon down, you know, and, and you could see it. Uh, me and David discussed prior of how strong he was on television and how much he, he loved that medium to be able to get his point across to the American people. But you could see it now that th- this was not the same man that you'd elected president just a year or so prior. I mean, he was starting to, to lose his grip and he could see it happening in front of him. Yeah, he was. Um, and increasingly now he is not running the government anymore. And this was a guy who up to that point, you know, was, was very, very involved in the decision-making of, of everything. You know, he was a control freak, as we know, um, he centralized so much to from now until the end of his presidency, he has focused almost entirely on Watergate. He begins drinking too much. Now that sounds like when you say that, and I do understand this, it sounds like, oh, he was getting ha- hammered. He wasn't drinking you know, bottles and bottles of whiskey. But the problem Nixon had is he was one of these guys that a couple of drinks and he, he was hammered, basically. Yeah. So he would go in at night after a very long day fighting Watergate um, and he'd have you know, a couple of drinks, a glass of wine with dinner and a whiskey, and he'd be hammered and he would start making phone calls to people. And we get the famous one with Haldeman, for example, where he's quite clearly slurring and he says to him, you know, God damn it, I love you, boy. And then he kind of catches himself and remembers what a, a, a stiff upper lip guy is, like a brother. Yeah. Just in case, you know, yeah. Haldeman got the wrong idea. Um, <laughs> uh, and, it, and the really kind of pathetic moment where after 
that TV appearance, he is sitting in his in his study and he's waiting for the phone to ring from cabinet members to tell him how well he'd done. He needed that approbation and yeah. it doesn't happen. So he phones Haldeman and then rather pathetically says, you know, none of them have phoned. And what he didn't know, of course, was that the reason they used to phone is that Haldeman would phone them and say, phone yep. the president and tell him he's done a good job. And he actually says, do you think you could phone around and see how they've done and hold them says, I don't think that would be appropriate, Mr. President. Um, and it's kind of pathetic uh, that here he is, uh, you know, the, the most powerful man in the world, ostensibly, and he's sitting alone, drunk, any study, feeling sorry for himself, needing people to phone him and tell him how well he's doing. And yeah, there's something I, quite sad about that. I, I think, you know, here's a good spot. We, we can... It's kind of hard just to figure out where the hell to drop in all these these parts of the tapes here. But I, I think here's a good point. Because that we can go back to this tape that we get from 1971 of him and John Mitchell. Uh, this is from June in 1971. Of course, this is one of the tapes that we get much, 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 much later. But it's um, him, him talking to John Mitchell. He's getting ready to go to the FBI Academy and give this speech, right, to, to the new cadets and how we're going to deal with Hoover and we've got this Ellsberg thing going on still. And, and you can hear... I mean, this, again, in June of 71, is still a man in control of his White House and, and still in control of, of the fucking country. You know, the, mm-hmm. this is this is before everything's obviously starting to slip from his grasp. Take, take a listen. I'll tell you what I'd like to do. Why don't you just say that I it came to my attention, that I've heard about it, that I feel very strongly. I'll be glad to talk to him about it, but I, I feel I understand the disciplinary thing. But I think the primary consideration is we must not have anything with regard to Ellsberg to reflect on Edgar Hoover. And I, and he just has got to find a way to handle it that does not to, to do that. All right, sir. And just tell him that. And then if it's needed for me to call, I'll back it up. I'll back it up. Let me. You tell him. You tell him I've talked to President Lick. And Edgar, he doesn't want to embarrass you uh, in a disciplinary matter where, where, where he is over with the director, but he feels very strongly. He's coming over there to the FBI, he, uh, you know, and after all, uh, we uh, and he knows that discipline is important, but he feels very strongly that we must not have the Ellsberg thing be a reason for dissension in the Bureau. That could raise holy hell. Could that be all right? Yes, sir. I'm we'll, going to try it. We'll try it that way and see how right. it flies. I would yeah. would hope that uh, he doesn't blow his stack and leave the fold. I don't believe he will. Well, if he, if he does, no, I'll be ready. I'll be ready to talk to him. All right, sir. But absolutely. But uh, he just, he just, I just don't, I just say that we've got to keep our eye on the main ball. The main ball's Ellsberg. we got to get this son of a bitch. All right, so we've got that. Now, now here's a couple from uh let's let's fast forward here to april 30th of uh, 73 of course this is the day that he has uh had to let go of bob haldeman and ehrlichman his two most important aides you know uh klein deans has had to resign john dean is fired because you know he's starting to put two and two together and realize he's fucked Uh, (laughs) so again in in this typical nixon faction there are Dozens of telephone calls from this night, but here, here's two big ones right here. He talks to Ronald Reagan, the governor of California. Now, of course, the, the office that Nixon could not win uh, at, at about 10 o'clock. And well, yeah, go, go ahead and listen to this one. Hello, Mr. President. Hello, Ron. How are you? Just fine. And how are you? Well, I couldn't be better. You, you must have, the time is so far different. You're about only 7 o'clock or 8 o'clock there, huh? Yes. Yeah. 
how nice of you to call. Well, I just wanted you to know. We watched, and my heart was with you. I know what this must have been, and, and what this must have been in all these days, and what you've been through, and I just wanted you to know that, uh, for whatever it's worth, uh, I'm still behind. You can count on us. We're still behind you out here, and, and uh, I wanted you to know that you're in our prayers. How nice of you to say that. Well, let me tell you this. That that we can be, each of us has a different religion, you know? Yeah. But God damn it, Ron, we have got to build peace in the world. And that's what I'm working on. And you're going to work on it and all the rest. Just want you to know I so appreciate your calling and give my greatest love to Nancy. Well, how how did you ever marry such a pretty girl? My <laughs> God. <laughs> well, just unlucky. You were lucky. That's right. As I was lucky. Yes. Yes, you were. But how nice of you to call. Well, we, we just... You thought, you thought it was the right speech, did you? I did. Very much so. Yes. Had to say it. Had to say it. Yeah. I know how, how difficult it was, and I know what it must be with the... With the fellows having to do what they did. And, That's right. They had to get out. Yeah. I can I can understand that it's... Uh, right. Where are you now? Are you in Sacramento? No, Los Angeles. <laughs> Good for you. Get out of that miserable city. Yeah. Right. Well, well, it's damn nice of you to call. Well, just... Uh, okay. This, this too shall pass. Everything passes. Thank you. You bet. All right. Give, give our back. Give our back. And now what people as not. <laughs> yeah. Well and and here. Now now one hour later, um he talks to George H. W. Bush. Uh the, again, so now he's talked to the next two Republican president, now, you know, discounting Gerald Ford, Homer Homer Simpson's best friend there. Uh <laughs> discounting him. But listen, within this one hour gap of him talking to Reagan and now Bush, this is a man who has um well as David said, I mean it doesn't take much, but but He's tied it on in, in this time. Hello, Mr. George Bush calling the president. Oh, um, yes, and then there was also Don Hughes on the phone. I beg your pardon? There was a Don Hughes on the phone from George. Thailand via satellite, and George Bush is on the phone. Hello? Hello? President? George, are you? I'm fine, and I, I've heard that speech with great pride. I tried to call in there, but the switchboard's been lit up, I guess. I don't let anybody through, but... Well, would... I couldn't even get the operator there, but I... I... We've been, I've been on the phone, George, all night. <laughs> I'll bet you have, but we watched it. We digested, attended a Republican leadership conference here, and I... I really, I really was proud of you, and my golly, I know it was tough, and I, I just wanted to tell you that, because it, uh, to me, it came through clearly and forcefully, and, and it conveyed the deep depth of feeling that I know you must have had agonizing over John and Bob and stuff, and I just wanted to tell you that before I went to sleep. Well, good to you, George. Because, uh, it, it, uh, well, now, George, the main thing is you had nothing to do with this goddamn thing. No. We're going to go on. Is the May 8th dinner going on? Well, it's going, yeah, and it's... it's, it's, it's no, this may help it. This may help it. And, and if it does, I'll come by, and they all got to cheer. You understand? There's no problem on that. They will. The, the, the people in the political thing have wanted something 
but it's it's and it's and when you tell them this and and, and get it in the focus is exactly. And I appreciate what you suggest. You do anything, and I may call on you, but well, but I don't. I'm not sure. But what you're doing, the most important thing you can do. But in any event, you and I will be going to be very close. You understand that? Well, best of luck and holler on anything, tough ones, anything. Cause I know that, George. Came through great, and I don't. I sit here. Bob, Barbara and I were sitting listening to these guys. Yep. Barbara, my best. Uh, what? The, the commentators oh, giving it out? Well, Rowan and it's an arrogant bastards that don't really, you know, and they don't get the, the thing that burns me up is the feeling that you had and that came through. They don't, there's a little credit for that, but I think the people are let, The folks may understand it. They you understand see, it. The folks didn't understand the uh, checker speech, but the yeah. people did. You mean the, the commentators didn't, and the commentators didn't understand Cambodia, but the people did, and the commentators didn't understand May 8th, but the people did. Well, ah, the hell with the commentators. The hell with them. This is going to come through good, and, and I think okay, boy. a lot of people are rooting for you. All right, boy. Okay, sir. How good of you to call? Not at all. I'm just... Do my best to Barbara. I will, sir. Goodbye. Oh, yeah. Um... To the point where basically Kissinger is now running U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. And well, and Kissinger uh, calls this night, too. Fuck it. Here, have that one yeah. while we're here. Oh, Mr. President. Hi, Henry. How are you? Okay. Fine. I didn't have really have anything. I just wanted to call you to tell you I was thinking of. Oh, sure. Well, that's fine, Henry. Now you get on with your business, and I'll, I'll work. Don't you worry. Don't you? Well, I have no, no question about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got some awful tough calls to make. Well, it'll make a painful one, but I I know it's going to come out for the best. <laughs> well, you know how it is. Uh, there's uh, still some rough water ahead, and we're just going to have. Well, Mr. President, no one can undo the achievement. None of these packs of jackals. Well, look, and and in the None end, the achievements that are. And in the end, now that's not uh, in the end. Uh, remember, uh, within a year, people are not going to be thinking of this. They're going to be thinking of what we've been doing, Henry. So don't you Within three that. months, Mr. President, yeah. no one will be able to... Get, frankly, people are getting goddamn sick of it now, you know. It's, I mean... I think, in fact, that... You know, I've noticed, I've noticed people just... I just have a feeling that uh, even now, you know, you, you pick up the paper and it's Watergate, Watergate. Dean charges this and somebody charges that. And who, 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 who broke into the psychiatrist office? Wasn't that the silliest goddamn thing? Kissinger's brand of sycophancy... Um, really has to be held to be believed, doesn't it? Oh, it's, it's yeah, it's ridiculous. I, I mean, it, you, it's, it's just so, spilling out of him. I mean, yeah, it's and so it, ridiculous. It, it kind of says a lot about Nixon's personality that A, he couldn't see it for what it was, and B, yeah. he needed it, um, I think. So, you know, you've got the president now who, and, and as anybody knows, once you're stressed and once you feel trapped, you make bad decisions. Bad decisions compound uh, yeah. on one another, and he, we're going to get a doozy. So into this picture um, now comes, we've, we've talked, we've sort of hinted about this a few times, Spiro Agnew, the vice president. Spiro Agnew was ahead of his time in that he was a demagogic po uh, populist politician who got where he was by bashing the media. And uh, he was uh, the governor of Maryland, yeah. um, which I think most people don't understand over here is actually a southern state yeah it's um, below the mason dixon line yeah, i mean it is, it, it is the mason dixon line yeah I mean, it's it's in the deep south but it's still yeah. it's still the it's south still, yeah. uh, so the geographic balance on the ticket he wasn't particularly well known as the name suggests he came from a greek background so yeah. um he's got a strong, strong military thing. career just, just strong like military Nixon. career so you know he, he was an attractive 
vice presidential candidate. And as we, we mentioned before, I think there's a thing in Britain that we just assume that the president picks his vice president because, you know, he thinks he's a, a really great guy and he trusts him very rarely, is it that? Um, <laughs> it's generally a bit of, you know, on the ticket, uh, you'll strengthen and help us get elected. Um, but Nixon doesn't have much to do with them, as we know in the office, Nixon doesn't have much to do with anybody. Um, but they use Agnew and they appreciate this because he does the role that Nixon did for Eisenhower, which is he goes out and basically is the tough guy. He goes out and yeah. he bashes anti-war protesters and he bashes the, the elite liberal media. He had a lovely talent for alliteration. Um, he once referred to to the East Coast establishment as nattering nabobs of negativity <laughs> and uh, pampered princes uh, with Pinocchio-like lies. So he, he enjoyed a bit of alliteration, but he would go and he was wildly popular with the right wing of the Republican Party. Well, Nixon's uh, Nixon. I mean, that, that was Yeah, it. Nixon. Yep. That's it. Nixon's and and Nixon. Nixon actually thought he was a lazy bastard. Yeah. Um, Nixon <laughs> thought, he said, you know, I went to Caracas, I went to Russia, where's he's playing golf um so you know nixon thought he was a lazy bat but when he was the governor of maryland uh there's no other way to put this i can't you know i was trying to think of a clever way to put it but uh he was on the take yeah yes well even prior to that i mean he he was the the the, uh county executive for the uh was a baltimore county i believe yeah if you wanted a contract and 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 nixon knew this he says early on um you know, they're all at like that in Maryland. Yeah. Uh, that, that, you know, that's what they do. But basically, yes, it had been a thing in Maryland for years. If you want, and it, hey, listen, worldwide, if you wanted a big government, or in this case, county uh, contract, you would go to the man who had it in his gift and you'd say, here, here's, you know, something for your retirement or whatever. And envelopes would be handed over. And there was a basic agreement that 5% of any contract would be handed over at a weekly rate to him. He continues it when he's in the governor's office. People who get contracts, and they're making a lot of money from it. Yeah. They will come in and they will hand over envelopes. But they find out about this in Maryland and a prosecutorial team, uh, a Republican prosecutorial team, it should mm-hmm. be remembered, uh, they find out and they go to the Attorney General, Elliot Richardson, and they say, look, we've we've got, and he has a look at this. And in his words, he said, it was the most open and shut case I ever saw on 45 years of trying legal cases. <laughs> so he goes to the president and he said, the president wasn't shocked, which shocked me. The president says, yep, I well, uh, I knew it. And the, the president says to Agnew, Again, through Haig, through his chief of staff, because he doesn't do confrontation. You know, you need to resign. And I just, no, you know, I don't, I don't think I do. I don't think I will. Um, no. I don't think I will. You know, I think I'll fight this. So, Richardson. Well, well, the, the, the thing, to, because there's still, the, the statute of limitations had run out on, on what he'd done, you know, back back in Maryland. But uh, the, the problem was that the, the, the federal prosecutor is still looking at this when Nixon goes to him and says, dude, come on, you got to go, uh, are still well, uncovering the fact that this didn't stop when he became vice president, that there were people no. coming to the executive office the building White House. Dro- dropping off, you know, brown paper bags filled with cash that were going in the Sphero Agnew's top desk drawer. Shane isn't doing a metaphor there, by the way. Shane is literally describing what happened in the <laughs> vice president's office of the USA. Men would arrive with 
money in brown paper envelopes, <laughs> hand them to the vice president who would literally put them in his desk drawer. So they, they have him, right? Um, but he goes out and he speaks famously, I will not resign if indicted. I will not resign. He says it twice for effect. No. Um, and, uh, you know, he's been backed. Elliot Richardson, the Attorney General, has this nightmare scenario of the what could happen is Spiro Agnew, the vice president of USA, is in court and they ask him to raise his right hand and swear on the Bible that he's telling the truth. And then someone rushes through the doors and said, the president has been impeached. So could you raise your right hand again? Because you're just about to be inaugurated as president <laughs> while on trial. That was the nightmare scenario. And they said, we've got to get rid of this guy. Nixon then comes up with a plan in his mind. He thinks, okay, right, quid pro quo. I'll get rid of Agnew, but then I'm getting rid of Archibald Cox. I'm sacking. Now, people in Britain, I think, I, I used to have problems with this as well. We don't understand how the president can sack the person investigating him. But he can. The well, Justice well Department, he's, he's not supposed to be able. Uh, that, that was the problem with the cops. He shouldn't. Thing, which we'll get to. Yes. Yeah, he, yes. He, he shouldn't, shouldn't have been able to. But, but he can because <laughs> the Justice Department is technically part of the executive yeah. uh, arm of government. And the therefore, Attorney General answers to the president. And, yeah, yeah. And the, the special prosecutor answers to it. So he can do it. He shouldn't, but he can. So he says, yeah, that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to. Goodbye, Archibald Cox. So, Agnew, they eventually get, because the evidence is, he will plead nolo contendere, which is uh, an old legal term for... No contest. No contest. I'm not contesting this. To one count um, of... Uh, ta- tax, tax evasion. evasion from like yeah. five or six years before or yeah. something. Yeah, Won't admit to the bribery. Won't admit. Yeah. Um, but in return, he will resign the presidency, yeah. uh, the vice presidency. Now, a lot of people, even in the prosecutorial team, were like, no, he broke the law, he should go to jail. Um, and he did it, you know, without remorse, and he kept doing it right up until he was caught. But Elliot Richardson uh, said, look, guys, we've got to get rid of him. Okay, so um, he he makes a very dignified statement saying, you know, the loss of prestige, the loss of status, and they have this this wonderfully choreographed thing where he sends a letter to Haig at twelve oh one, saying he resigns. Well, and then he and goes K- to court. Kissinger because the, the official Kissinger saw it yeah, yeah, yeah. All, yeah. all the, res- the resignation letter of a vice president or president has to go to the Secretary of State. So, so yes. he then drives to court, doesn't say a word, pleads no, no low contendere. Um, plea is accepted by the judge unhappily because he thinks he should go to jail as well. Yeah. Uh, and Agnew leaves free but no longer the vice president of the USA. And Nixon thinks, great, well, firstly, we now don't have a vice president, so if they get rid of me, the country will go to shit. So there's a little (laughs) bit of insurance for me. And now this, uh, who will rid me of this turbulent prosecutor, as uh, Henry might have said uh, all those years ago, if it hadn't been for the priest. Um, So he he says, uh, right, I'm, I'm... I'm going to fire him. And Shane, what then happens, as described on NBC News, the biggest constitutional crisis in the history of the the country. Although I would slightly disagree. I think the whole half of the country fucking off in 1861 was probably Uh, a bit bigger. (laughs) Slightly, slightly. Biggest in the 20th century. I'll I'll go with that. 
the 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 thing that one of the biggest problems with the Agnew resignation that Nixon didn't understand, I think, until well, obviously it was too late, was that you know we we hadn't had this situation of of well a vice president resigning his office while under criminal investigation. You know that this this didn't happen. I mean, we had John C. Calhoun back in 1826, but that really didn't go anywhere. And actually it was part of what Agnew took to say, Hey, you guys can't really fucking do anything to me, you know? And when Agnew resigned, it suddenly made this very impossible seeming thing so much more possible, right? That, that a vice president could effectively be removed from office for crimes he committed in the, well, prior to and during his time in office. And therefore, well, why can't this happen to the president now? And I, again, I don't, I don't think Nixon realized it on October 10th when Agnew, you know, stepped down and, and went and pled no contest. But I think by the following, you know, October 20th, it was kind of settling in. And so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, it's time for the Saturday Night Massacre. And good God, is there blood flying all over the place? So we'll be right back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So, uh, my goodness. Now, as Shane says, Nixon doesn't quite realize that he's normalized. He hasn't, but Agnew has normalized the idea of you can get rid of somebody if they do wrong. He doesn't quite understand that... There's a psychological bridge. I think we've spoken about this, Shane, haven't we, on here, that the American people fundamentally at this point wanted to give the president, no matter who, the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. They'd done it with Johnson, they'd done it with Kennedy, they'd done it with Eisenhower. The respect for the office was enormous. And uh, he then decides, no, nah, I'm getting rid of Cox. He's been told not to get the tapes. And incidentally, there is a strong legal argument that he loses in court, but he yeah. probably shouldn't have. And uh, his view was, I am allowed to keep documents back from Cox because he's an employee, and this is basically a, a work dispute. Uh, you can't sue your boss for making a decision you don't agree with in the running of the company. Uh, it wouldn't work, obviously, with the Congress, who are a separate, uh, you know, with Sam Irvin's investigation, or the right. Senate, rather, because they're separate. Uh, but well, and would... the House Judiciary Committee kind of starting to poke around, like, yeah. how would we 
do this impeachment thing because it hasn't been done in over a hundred years. So. No, it hasn't, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's quite an interesting thing that that uh, the, the the advice they get back the from their own legal experts when it comes to both Agnew and Nixon with a vice president. Uh, can you indict him for a crime? Yes, you can. Yeah. For uh, a president, can you indict him for a crime? Yes, you can, but you shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. That was the legal Basically. advice. Yes. Basically, yes. Yeah. It's like you probably can, but you shouldn't do it. But yeah, uh, yeah they're starting to poke about. Um, and Nixon makes this decision uh, and he calls Elliot Richardson. Or he does rather. Well, 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 we, we, we should do the the, the Stennis the Stennis conference. Oh my God, yes. the Stennis conference! Well, oh, so, so, I love this so much. So there, there, there's some rumblings about what's actually on these tapes starting to get out of the White House, right? Um, again, we we've heard the smoking gun tape before between him and Bob Haldeman. I think we listened to that back in episode three. And actually, oh fuck it, here let's listen to one of the last huge, huge, huge tapes. One of the ones that just, I mean, the, the second you hear this. You got everything you need to know. This is John Dean talking with Nixon back on uh, was it March twentieth or twenty first of seventy three. This is the the famous the the famous cancer on the presidency tape. Now, just like I said, everything that you need to know about um, well, is there crime being committed? (laughs) Lays in about the next four minutes that you're going to hear. Person and, and wouldn't have put 
situation to where it is today. Right after rejecting that, they said, we still need something. So I was told to look around for somebody that could go over to 1701 and do this. And that's when I came up with Gordon Liddy, who they need a lawyer. Gordon had an intelligence background from his FBI service. I was aware of the fact that he had done some extremely sensitive things for the White House while he'd been at the White House, and he had apparently done them well, uh, going out into Ellsberg's doctor's office and things like this. He'd worked with leaks. He, you know, tracked these things down. Uh, and <clears throat> so the report that I got from Crow was that he was a hell of a good man and, and not only that, a good lawyer. Uh, and could set up a proper operation. So we talked to Liddy. Liddy was interested in doing it. Took uh, Liddy over to meet Mitchell. Mitchell thought highly of him because apparently Mitchell was partially involved in his coming to the White House to work for, for Crow. Uh, Liddy had been a treasurer before that. Then Liddy was told to put together his plan, you know, how he would run an intelligence operation. And this was after he was hired over there at the, uh, the committee. Magruder called me in January and said, I'd like to have you come over and see Liddy's plan or January of 72. Like, you come over to Mitchell's office and sit in on me where Liddy's going to lay his plan out. I said, well, I don't really know if I'm the man, but if you want me there, I'll be happy to. <laughs> so I came over. And Liddy laid out a million-dollar plan that was the most incredible thing I have ever laid my eyes on, all in codes and involved black bag operations, kidnapping, providing prostitutes uh, to weaken the opposition, bugging, uh, mugging teams. It was just an incredible thing. I believe the answer that you're looking for, folks, is yes. Yes, there is. Um, to Shane's so, so, question. So, so Nixon, realizing this, hatches this grand plan, right? He's still fighting this in the courts. I'm not going to give you the tapes. I'm not, you know, Sirick is still there. you still got Cox there. you still got Irvin's committee there. Still fighting this through the courts. It's gone to the district court, to the appeals court, kicked back down to the district court. He's getting nowhere because everybody's saying, no, this is not going to fucking work. You, These are legitimate subpoenas. For evidence in this case, and in fact, at one point, Sirica says, "You know what? Give, give him to the court. We'll listen to him, uh, and then we'll decide if it should get released to the grand jury." Nixon because defies he was, that. He right? was claiming that oh, national security. Yeah, that was his other big. Defense. So this that goes end. to the, the the appeals court. The appeals court. The next one up, they say the exact same thing, and of course, no. So it just, I mean, th- this keeps going around and around. Nixon comes up with this. Great, this is amazing. Great compromise. The Stennis compromise where <laughs> it's, it's, it's ludicrous on its face um, because he, he, he so it was, it was John, John Stennis, right? It's John Stennis. He was a, a very, well, I mean, he's an old man from Mississippi. He's, he's a Democrat, but much 84. like. Yeah, he's 84. 84 years. You know, the thing too, he'd lived for, for quite a bit longer. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't done yet. But um, like Sam Urban, again, a Democrat, but he was a Southern Democrat. So, you know, as we discussed last week, this this leads him perhaps more in line with uh, uh, Dick Nixon's way of thinking on how the, the world in general should work. Um, but beyond all that, he was notoriously hard of hearing 
I mean, <laughs> it, it was one of the most. There, there were jokes about it throughout the Senate and, and and throughout you know the government in Washington and all this shit all the time. And, and of course, well, and beyond that too, he just recovered from being shot in a robbery. Uh, you know, which again, he he was fine. He lived for a number of years after this. But this is the the proposition that Nixon gives. Uh, on on October seventh, uh, well, the, the day before October nineteenth. Here, um, Cox in the middle of all this is going on a press blast, and actually on on October eighteenth, he gets out in front of the cameras here uh, and, and is laying out some of the all these other prosecutions or indictments that they've racked up against these illegal campaign financings. In fact, here's here's a clip of him talking about American Airlines, one of uh, you know Nixon's uh, biggest proponents at the time. I believe that the example of American Airlines, Mr. Spader, had a good deal to do with prompting others to come forward with voluntary disclosures of illegal corporate contributions. Uh, in the weeks to come, we will be bringing charges against other corporations and corporate officers, uh, both volunteers uh, and non-volunteers whose cases are under investigation. Uh, I should emphasize, too, that there are, in addition, certain aggravating rather than mitigating circumstances where more serious charges may be brought. Uh, in those cases where the, where the violators do not come forward voluntarily, but the violations are uncovered as a result of investigation by this office, uh, we may, in serious instances, charge the individual officer or officers with the willful felony violation of Section, 10, section 610 rather than the misdemeanor. Uh, this more serious charge might also be brought in instances in which there are indications that the contribution was given with intent improperly to influence some government action, or where there has been an effort to conceal or withhold evidence of other federal crimes by the persons under investigation. The really funny thing about that is uh, Cox's staff were very worried about him going in front of the cameras. Yeah. They thought he wouldn't shine at all. They thought that he would be too verbose, too wordy, and instead he is brilliant because yeah, yeah. he's honest and because he is approachable and he's not arrogant, he's not bullshitting, nor is he angry. And that's a key thing that, for example, if you want to contrast it with Kenneth Starr, Kenneth Starr looked rabid. Yeah. He always looked oh, like a mad I mean, dog. He was an asshole. I mean, that's, uh, well, that's yeah, and he, it. he clearly hated Clinton, and he yeah. was desperate to get him for something. But, but the American I, but... public saw that, and they felt they felt for him. Whereas this is not that. This is a guy yeah. who's literally sitting there saying, "You know, look, I think wrong's been done. I'm trying to find it. If I don't find it, fair enough. But the country will suffer for it." And he's totally reasonable. Yeah. Well, I, I think, I mean, you can hear it, that, that last clip, like I said, is from two days before. Uh, again, I mean, the, this is on, on Saturday, uh, October 20th here, right? The, this, is, this is the big day. This is, it's college football day in America. For me, it's the third Saturday in October, and Tennessee has just got run over by Alabama. Uh, not good, but, I mean, you know, there's, there's college football on everywhere. So some of the networks don't even carry this, this press conference that Cox calls. Uh, and here... Well, we, we I, I pulled the whole clip of the the CBS one hour long shit. We're not going to listen to the whole thing, but fuck it, let, let's dive into some of it here. Here's here's the CBS breaking in the coverage on uh, Saturday afternoon to to give you a, a Archibald Cox sitting behind a desk, just being as calm and cool as a chill as a motherfucker can be right here. Sideswipers reset comes with two freewheeling cars plus everything you see here from Aurora, Channel Two, New York. This is a special report from CBS News in Washington. Here is CBS News correspondent Nelson Benton. 
This is the National Press Club in Washington, where Special Watergate Prosecutor Archibald Cox is holding a news conference in a few moments to discuss the president's action of last night on the Watergate tapes. The White House announcing that rather than appealing to the Supreme Court and appeals court order to turn the tapes over to Cox, it would provide a summary of the tapes, both to Cox and to the Watergate committee. And right away, as David said, he comes out and he said, look, I'm, I... I really I don't want to come off as as somebody overbearing or somebody that's that's out here with a vendetta, you know, that famously, you know, that Cox was defiant. Well, again, here's here's just another brief clip from from the press conference right here. Uh, I read in one of the newspapers this morning uh, the headline uh, Cox defiant. Uh, I do want to say that I I don't feel defiant. In fact, I told my wife this morning, I hate a fight. Uh, some things I feel very deeply about uh, are at stake, and I hope that I can explain and defend them steadfastly. Todd to argue, isn't it? Was no, that, it's, uh, he... yeah. And like, I mean, it's, he's collective. He's he's going without notes, really. You know, I mean, he's, he's sitting there, he's got a few. Uh, you know, he's sitting there the whole time. He always, he doesn't have his bow tie on. Because he, he hurriedly rushes down there and just has to throw on a tie from somebody else. He's got on like this tan, I don't know, seersucker looking suit kind of a thing. You know, it's, he looks it's like not, Professor. Yeah, he, he absolutely. Looks every inch. Absolutely. And, he, and he's sitting there, professor. you know, he doesn't have his pocket square in. He keeps fiddling with his pocket the whole time because obviously, you know, he's not, he's not in he's his nervous. normal, yeah, he's not in his usual element whatsoever. But he, he calmly looks. sits there and lays out exactly what. You know, look, this is what I thought I had to do. And this, well, here, we'll we'll play two quick ones here. I mean, he lays out exactly what he thought he was brought here to do. And then why the John Stennis thing, just despite all the respect for Stennis in the world, why it simply will not work. Uh, As you all know, uh, there has been and is evidence, uh, not proof perhaps in some instances, but clearly prima facie evidence, of serious wrongdoing on the part of high government officials. Uh, Wrongdoing involving uh, an effort to cover up other wrongdoing. Uh, It appeared that papers, documents, and recordings of conversations in the White House, including the tapes, would be relevant to getting the truth about those incidents. I'm referring not only to the Watergate incident itself, uh, but to other things uh, involving electronic surveillance, uh, break-ins at a doctor's office, uh, and the like. Uh, Two courts have ruled uh, that, with some exclusions, not only uh, the tapes of nine conversations, but some very important papers memoranda and other documents bearing on those conversations uh, are relevant and should be supplied uh, to pursue the investigation. Uh, Last night we were told that the court order would not be obeyed. It's not a question of Senator Stennis's integrity. I have no doubt at all of Senator Stennis's personal integrity. But it seems to me that it's the kind of question where it is terribly important uh, to adhere uh, to the established institutions 
and not to accommodate it by some private arrangement involving, as I say, uh, submitting the evidence ultimately to any one man. And it's brilliant. I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. And it was all, I mean, you, you hear interviews with people that worked with him later that, I mean, it was just, it was his idea. He said, you don't know fuck this. Cause and they were they're... like, are you sure about this? Yep. Uh, um, because they didn't think. And the thing about it is, is that this is a time where American people feel they're being fed bullshit. Yep. They feel that there's lies coming from someone, you know, on, on whatever side. And here's this this guy who just comes out and she says he's decent and he's honourable and he's he's grandfatherly and he's dignified. All of the qualities that we all admire in in people. Um and even the the, the kind of hard bitten press corps, at the end of it they stand up and one of them shouts, You're a great American, sir. <laughs> um and you know it, it it's true because it's very difficult to argue with that. So Nixon, of course, decides he will argue with it. Yeah. Um, and he well, brings, it, uh, yeah, I, I think too. You know, quickly, what, one of the things that, that that Cox finishes in laying out was, look, because I mean, he's got the feeling; he knows what's coming, right? He knows what Nixon's about to do, and he says, you know, in some of his last remarks there, that look, Elliot Richardson sat up there at the Senate and made a promise that I get to do this fucking job no matter what, as long as there's no, you know, massive impropriety on my part, as long as I'm sitting here doing exactly what I was told to do, that nothing will happen from above, from the White House, to, to compromise my position. And he lays it out very, very clear. Again, I mean, you know, very clearly in an easy, easy to follow language. This is not a Harvard lawyer, to, you know, talking about, nope, uh, talking you know, theory. This is a guy talking to the people sitting at home on a Saturday afternoon watching. So here. The other main part uh, of the president's statement last night uh, said that I would be instructed uh, not to use the judicial process in order to obtain uh, tapes, uh, documents, memoranda relating to other presidential conversations. Uh, this uh, instructs me uh, not to pursue uh, what would be the normal course uh, of a prosecutor's duty in conducting this kind of investigation. And I think the instructions uh, are inconsistent with uh, pledges that were made to the United States Senate and through the Senate uh, to the American people uh, before I was appointed. Uh, and before Attorney General Richardson's nomination was confirmed. But yeah, Nixon, no, not going to have it, David. <laughs> Nixon phones, uh, well, he gets Haig to do it. Um, uh, you need to tell Elliot Richardson, the Attorney General, to sack uh, Archibald Cox and his prosecutorial team. Archibald Cox is at the Department of Justice. He speaks to his assistant, um, a, a, another very dignified guy called William Rucklesouse, who again, unfortunately for Nixon, had a conscience. See yeah, all these yeah. bloody war heroes. He was another yeah, one. God, see all these all guys. The... Yeah. Where, see all these guys who'd fought the Nazis because they thought they were bad people, and then they went into government because they thought, you know, they would try and make the country better. See these bastards. Saying, oh my God. Yeah, all, all, all these them, fuckers not from California. <laughs> for, for yeah, for for one of them now, you know. So the, the, you know, Richardson's like, I can't. I can't do that. I gave my word. I'm not. I'm not going back on it. 
Um, and he says to, to Ruckles House, will, will you do it? He said, no, I'm not. I'm not doing it either. So he goes uh, to the White House and Nixon says to him, you know, you have to do this. You know, if Brezhnev sees I'm looking weak, then this will be bad for Soviet relations. And he's yeah, well, what was it? You can't let your purely political or uh, whatever. I, I forget what the comment is. He, says he to said, Richardson. well, that's it. He says to Richardson, he says, I'm very disappointed that you're putting your own personal political principles yes. uh, ahead of the good of the nation. And Elliot Richardson's a very dignified man, draws himself up to his full height. He's also a very big man. And he says, Mr. President, I think you and I have a very different understanding of what the national interest is. Yep. And he leaves and he resigns. And he resigns. <laughs> William Rockleshouse, who's the Deputy Attorney General, he resigns. He won't fire him either. He resigns from his post. I, I love to, you know, with Rockleshouse, because again, you know, Nixon trying to show strength in in the White House reporting this stuff out said, all right, well, Richardson resigned, then Rockleshouse wouldn't do it, so I fired him. But no, that's. That wasn't the case. Ruckles House also resigned, despite, the, House, d- d- despite the White House trying to brief everyone that he, Nixon was like, you know, what? fuck you, get the hell out of here. Nope. You know, he he walked. Ruckles House walked. Um, uh, Ruckles House, who was again, you know, very straightforward guy, wasn't having yep. it. So the third guy on the the list is the Solicitor General Robert Bork, and this would end up costing Bork. Um, what a great name! You you Americans, you have some <sighs> some great names. Bork, well, I, I, um, I, I will point. This is not the only thing that cost Bork. The the other part was uh, his insane legal theories that he started well that, in the nineteen eighties. But <laughs> that doesn't help either, no, right? But no. he, he basically he he gets turned down in the eighties for a Supreme Court role yeah. um, by the Senate. They won't approve him. But uh, Bork, who at this time for British listeners looks like Jimmy Hill, um, <laughs> he's got, he does. He really does. Um, he goes to the White House, uh, and and his view, which it's somewhere is look. This is the president giving an order. Someone has to do it. Whether you, he says, "I'm going to do it," well, I well might he, he, he calls Richardson and Rucklehouse too, who to tell him, "Look, you didn't make the same promises to the Senate that we did, so, and so somebody you, has you, to do this. You can do this, and yes, yeah. someone has to because if not, again, the destabilization of government is just going to fucking tip over, yeah. and we won't know where this flood stops." Yeah, but somebody, you know, and and it, he got criticism for it. Look, he was on. Nixon side. Don't oh, get yeah. me wrong. No, no. Um, I mean, Cox is a diehard, tried and true, like modern conservative. Rep- I mean, th- this is this is one of the guys again, uh, who Bork. who built or sorry, Bork, sorry, Bork, uh, who built the modern conservative legal theory that is currently ravaging uh, this nation. Mm. I mean, he is one of those guys who put all this stuff into place. So yes, he is very much on board with protecting Nixon, defending the party, doing whatever it takes, and after being yeah. told. By Richardson and Ruckel's house, go ahead and do it. He fires Cox. As he says, he goes, you know, I didn't want it getting down to a janitor having to sack him. Um, <laughs> they're already down to the third guy in the department. Uh, and look, I actually think he did the right thing, right? Because, you know, Cox was going and as Shane says, you do have to, ha- otherwise government stops functioning if yep. people just all refuse to do it. So he fires him. Well then, does the shit hit the fan. The... Cox gets a phone call at his house um, from Bork and he phones his team and he says, get down there, get down to the offices because this is how bad it is, folks. Um, They'll go and they'll try and take all the reports and they'll try and destroy all the evidence that we've gathered. So his team of kind of youngish lawyers, they all... Book it down, down there. Again, this is a Saturday night. They're all sitting at home. They're drinking. They're having fun, doing whatever. And now it's like, 
Holy fuck. Get to the <laughs> office now. And Barry, in take overnight clothes, you're going to be, you're staying in there. The FBI, um, and it's Angie Lano, which I think is great, the guy who was actually the first FBI guy investigating the break-in. Yeah. Um, and they all know him because he's been helping them. And, you know, so they get down there and he says, I get an order from Haig, right, or your FBI get an order and it comes yeah. to, to Lano, get down there and, and secure the offices. Yeah. So he gets down there and the lawyers are all going, are you, are you with us and against us, Angie? Well, I don't want to be here either. Right? You know, I've, I've been ordered to be here. Stop shouting at me. The issue that yeah, the cameras all arrived. The footage is there. Go and look for it, folks. Saturday Night Massacre. Um, uh, and there's this extraordinary uh, interview with uh, Hank, uh, Henry Hank Ruth, who was uh, Cox's assistant. Hmm. Again, very dignified. He's clearly angry. It, you can see it. And he, he said, you know, how do you feel about being uh, about being fired? And he said, well, you can disband all you like, but the evidence is still here. Uh, he said, we, I like to think I live in a country of laws, not men. But when things like this happen, you begin to wonder just how much our democracy is worth. Well, Shane, the next morning, what was it? 350,000 telegrams arrived yeah. to the White House? Yeah, I mean, they just start pouring in over and over. I mean, just constantly. And and again, the, the Nixon horribly misjudging the situation here. Um, uh, you know, and Cox's team, I will, I, to their credit, because the, the next day, you know, the New York Times, uh, that there had Nixon discharges Cox for defiance. Abolishes Watergate task force, you know, it was was the banner head. NBC News ran with the story that 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 the the special prosecutor's office had been disbanded, but nobody really knew, you know, because nobody said, all right, not only is Cox gone, but the entire prosecutor's office is gone. Uh, he just fired Cox, so everybody on the staff decided, well, fuck it, let's just keep working like we're still here until they come completely you know again the, the fbi has basically sealed their office off like a crime scene but that doesn't mean they can't go work someplace else and so that's what they do and in the meantime i mean the, the nation this is really where shit starts to turn against nixon um because it's it's not i the, within one week right there, there's a poll for nbc news for the first time the plurality of people uh, support impeaching Nixon for the first and it's all because of this because of this absolute clusterfuck of a situation the fact that he's torn apart the Justice Department because people were trying to follow the law but he decided no you don't know what the fuck the law is I'm going to take this matter into my own hands and we're, we're going to do this shit anyway and within 10 days on October 30th the house opens up its first you know it opens up the the the, the impeachment inquiry. Um, he has which, greased the wheels now. Yeah, and and the very next day, his now you know acting attorney general Robert Bork decides, look, we've still got to have a special prosecutor, and he goes out mm -hmm. and gets Leon Jaworski, who is more of a Nixon guy, but again is a man who respects the law. And, and is decent and has principles. And unfortunately yes. for Nixon, even if he, even and Jaworski, even if he went in there thinking Nixon is one hundred percent evident uh, innocent, is going to go where the evidence tells him. I know I keep saying this, folks. I know I keep saying this, but God, I wish we had more like this today. These were people who did what they felt was the right thing, and even 
if you disagreed with it, that was fine. But they went where the evidence took them. They never ever yep. went right. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell myself and other people that black is white. Jaworski is Republican. He's not particularly liberal, but he goes in. And he does. A, in fact, Nixon was he was one of the ones that Nixon was thinking of recruiting for his defense. Yep. Um, Jaworski. Yep. Uh, but it just shows you that, that people went in and they wouldn't allow partisanship to prevent them from being truthful and, and being upfront. And I think that that says a lot for the caliber of the people that we're dealing with in this. There's some bastards in here, of course. Oh, yeah. As there oh, always yeah. are, you know. Yep. Um, there's some immoral people. <laughs> there, there's one way um, up at the top. I mean, there's, you know. The, 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 you know, the, it's an immoral <laughs> White House. And you just, you, you need to look, you know, was was Nixon a lot, like prepared to lie for his own ends? Yes. Was Holderman an element? Yes. yes. Was Mitchell? Yes. Was Dean? Yes. Was yes. Magruder? Yes, right. But then on the other side, you have these guys who go in and say, no, I gave my word. And that's yeah. and that's it. That's the end of it. I gave my word, and therefore I'm going to do the job properly. But it's well, now a disaster. I mean, no, no. I, well, and with Jaworski, you know, again, I mean, Nixon kind of feels a little bit good about this, right? Just, just like this brief glimpse of, of I don't know, maybe things will be okay. But you know, they finally free up some of these tapes, and Jaworski sends over uh one of his deputies uh in in the special investigations over to the white house again i think on a saturday night and the guy um i, I forget his name but you know he, he describes this later as you know he shows up in like his pink bell bottoms and all this shit trying to get through the throngs of protesters that are camped outside the white house 24 hours a day now uh, out there on pennsylvania avenue and comes in shows his badge he goes in they give him a box of these tapes just the open reels uh, uh, sitting on a table, and you know, he asks for a box and and a, and a receipt, and they take him back to the office, and he picks out the the not not the cancer on the presidency tape that we just listened to, but the one from the day before with John Dean, where he says specifically it would take about a million dollars to to pay for all this stuff over the next two years, and Nixon says, well, he can find the money, and right mm-hmm. then, the the men working under Jaworski now, Cox's team realize, well, this is obstruction of justice, and they take the tape in the Jaworski and have him listen to it, fearful of how he's going to respond. You know, th- this is the first big moment for, for them working with Leon now. And said so he sat there calmly and, and listened. And when it got past that point, he, he took the headphones off and hit stop and just said, thank you. And <laughs> that was it. And that was the moment that they realized, all right, this, this guy's he's still here with us. You know, he's, he's not going to, let this White House sway what's going to happen. And this is, again, I mean, look, like David said, I mean, Nixon greased the fucking rails with the massacre, but now this train is fucking careening out of control down to the bottom of the valley because everything is circling. Between the Senate committee is still going on. You have the House Judiciary Committee opening up, trying to figure out, okay, look, we might have to impeach this guy, so how the fuck do we do this? And you've got Jaworski, who Nixon thought might, might, buy him so save him just a little bit maybe stop and peel back you, you know this conquest for the tapes but immediately just goes about exactly how cox would have kept doing the job yep he does um and it is the same team and as shane said they had they, they admitted to it they had concerns they felt you know that cox had been uh such a big part of it that they felt that they were getting in a stooge 
that they thought, well, oh, conservatives, yeah, we all know what's going to happen. And it didn't. Uh, and it took him a few weeks, as Shane mentioned there, to get their trust. But once he, he displayed, he was going to be honest. Interestingly, him and, uh, him and uh, uh, Henry Ruth go up to the White House, as you mentioned there, and they keep him waiting outside in the cold for 20 minutes. And uh, he, he turns around Riley to, 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 uh, to Peterson and says, uh, yeah, you would think that they would try to be a bit nicer to people like us, given what we're <laughs> trying to do. Uh, and and it's a fair point, isn't it? But by this stage, you know, the president is just, he's completely out of control. He realises, incidentally, I'm sure people were going to ask this, does he realise he's made a mistake? He realises he's made a mistake instantly. Because, as I say, 350,000 telegrams come in the next day telling him, you know, basically, you're a lying bastard. Mm. Um, and many from Republicans, right? Yeah. This is the difference now. He always did have his silent majority. Shane spoke last week about how his ratings held up. People didn't believe John Dean. People nope. did not believe John Dean. They didn't want to believe him, but, that, you know, that's fair. We all choose to believe what we want to believe. Um, but now, hang on a minute, you're desperately keeping these tapes away from us and you've sacked this guy for trying to get those tapes nah people aren't stupid people are not you can fool them for a bit but the more egregious the lies become then eventually we've just seen this in in britain actually where it, it some lies you get away with but eventually the sheer weight of them will catch will catch you up and no matter how you know, secure you feel you'll be you'll be out because eventually people just rebel they just say no i'm, I'm, I'm sorry you're, you're making me feel foolish for believing you all this yeah. and that's exactly what we're witnessing in this instance yeah and like i said you know as we were talking about earlier with a few exceptions of people at the top of the party whose entire well, i mean career investment in their career is tied up in the legitimacy of richard nixon as president like george hw bush the head of the the republican national committee who still, even after all this, is out there giving speeches, defending the man all the way through the winter of 73 and 74, um, up until, you know, the tapes finally start actually coming out into the press and and realizes, well, you know, the writing's kind of on the wall here. But outside of those people, I mean, even like Ed Gurney, uh, you know, the man who we heard at the beginning of last week's episode sparring with Sam Irvin, um, who was just a Nixon stooge on on the fucking Senate committee, even now he is going, no, no, I mean, there, there, there's no way back because, it, you know, I mean, it's 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 not even like a through the looking glass. It's just like he's he's fucking shattered it, and then lit the whole goddamn thing on fire. Like it's not. Uh, no, it's it's past that point. And still, though, Nixon, I, I'm honestly, even at this point, still shocked. And, and, and it's one of the great questions. I mean, one, why, why the hell do you want to hold, you know, when all this shit started coming apart? Why do you want to hold on to the tapes in the first fucking place? But two, why at this point he just doesn't fucking destroy them because he's got people telling them to do it yet again. You need to fucking get rid of these tapes. It's going to be bad enough without them. But if they're not there, they probably can't impeach you. You know, you still might be able to get out of this thing. But of course, he he does not do that. And as we'll come to here in a later episode, as we start climbing down to the the rapid, rapid conclusion of Dick Nixon's presidency, uh, which is just about to spiral completely out of control. Uh, yeah, it's, um, I mean, the bloodbath's not over, and there's a lot more, a lot more bodies that, that end up on the heap here. Um, but uh, yeah, th- this is, 
this is that three or four month period where I mean the, the, it just completely came undone. And Nixon himself, a man who through all these ups and downs, politically, you know, in his political career and and through, I mean, first term as a president, uh, calm and collected and cool as can be. And this guy always did his fucking job exactly right. But when this shit really started happening, this, as David said earlier, I mean, it just came apart at the seams for him and he didn't know what to do. No, um, you make yeah, when you're under pressure and in the wrong, you make bad decisions. When yeah. the walls are, are coming in on you, you make bad decisions. Uh, there does come a point where the only option is either accept what's going to happen to you uh, and face up or just wait for the, the slow death. He chooses the, the, the latter. Yeah, well, and sadly, it continues. I mean, fuck, past his death. I mean, the, the legal disputes over the tapes don't end in 1974 oh, no. with his resignation. I mean, he the, the, he keeps these court battles going through, again, him dying in 1994, and his estate continues it through until, what, 1998 or 99, where, where I think court, courts finally say, all right, look, you know, about 800 hours, and it's something like 40 million pages of documents hmm. have to be given back to, to the Nixon estate as private property. But the rest of it stays here, you know. Yeah, and and I mean, he, he fought it his whole life, literally uh, his whole yep. life afterwards. Yep. Uh, next week, I think we're going to take a little bit of a divergence. We're going to do a little bit different one. We're going to talk about the role of the media and some of the, you know, I mean, obviously everybody knows all the president's men. Everybody knows Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. We introduced you to them earlier in the series. If you didn't. But uh, there's a lot more going on with, with the media here. And I, th- I think it's important because without understanding its role um, and, and its excise role and, and how it went about, I don't know, managing the story, uh, going from Daniel Ellsberg all the way through to the break in and on through the, the committee and Cox and everybody else that, you know, really without about 10 or 12 of these people, none of this shit happens. I mean, it just, it just doesn't. And so we're going to spend some time next week talking about them before we get back to, well, again, the the ultimate collapse and demise of Richard Nixon. So, David, good times. Thank you. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for listening, folks. Thank you, Shane, for doing that. Absolutely. Uh, Of course, David, you can find, well, I always forget your other, what is it? David A. Edgar 23, right? That's that's the the non-heart and hand Twitter handle, correct? Yes. Yes. Um, non Hartman. David A. Edgar. If you want to talk to me about football, go to yeah, Ibrooks Rocks. If you want to talk to me about anything else, <laughs> it's uh, David A. Edgar 23. Uh, um, it, it stands for Alexander before you all get excited <laughs> and think it stands for like, Augustine or something. Um, so, yeah, I, and look, Shane and I are on there most nights talking about Wargate, actually. Yeah, so, if you, if, you, if you want to come on and see all the clips we've found and we're sharing with each other and all the, you know, the, the, I'm really looking forward to next week because the media story is so set in stone and look Woodward and Bernstein deserve a lot of credit but they've had a lot of credit it's yeah. time to shine the light uh, on a lot of they also served I think would be a good name for next yes. week because there was yeah. a lot of people who put a lot of work in who got a lot of big stories and history sadly has forgotten them and I think it's time history gave them back their due well, especially one man who shared their, their Pulitzer Award with them, who uh, yeah, has just been kind of written out. So, 
Uh, of course, it, all, all David said, so you can find everything over there in heart and hand, support everything they do through their Patreon. If you want to help out the Crow Pod, scroll down here in the show notes. There's a link for our Buy Me a Coffee uh, site. You can just go in. You can either chip in, or if you want to become a sponsor, there's information on how to do that. And again, we'll be back next week for the sixth edition in the Watergate 50 series as we take a bigger look at the media's role in, in unraveling and, and ultimately bringing down the, the presidency of Dick Nixon. So we'll see you then. Bye. It is just too tricky for a chump like me to use. Oh, you. You take that subcommittee serious, boy. And I'm serious. You just might get a seizure from the evening news.